You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. So do you know the old adage, you can't have your cake and eat it too? Or be careful what you wish for because you just might get it? Well, I think those are going to be the themes for today's episode of Labor Relations Radio. And the reason for that is I'm going to get into some wonky labor relations geeky stuff with you that because I spent the entire weekend ruminating and trying to logically process this dilemma... I don't really have the answers to, but I think I do. And the dilemma or the seeming dilemma is something that the National Labor Relations Board's general counsel may have inadvertently raised in her efforts to stifle employer speech. And in fact, over the weekend, I asked some attorney friends if they wanted to play stump the labor lawyer, but unfortunately, no one got back to me. And here I am on a Monday with a lot of questions and without definitive answers that I'm just going to lay out for you. And if you're a labor attorney, do me a favor, DM me, let me know if I'm right or wrong on this issue, because I think I'm onto something that maybe having may have inadvertently a boomerang effect on unions as well as unionized workers. So more specifically, this episode is going to be a bit of a follow-up and a deeper dive into the episode that we did a few weeks ago where we were discussing Jennifer Bruzzo, again the NLRB's general counsel, and her efforts to change the way employers explain unionization to employees during union organizing campaigns. And we're talking about Abruzzo's crackdown on communicating the concept of exclusive representation and how she expects employers under the threat of an unfair labor practice to parse out their statements, which is fine, by the way. But it begs the question, shouldn't the same rule apply to unions and shouldn't it apply to their rules, unions rules, as well as the collective bargaining agreements that unions negotiate? So we're going to we're going to touch on all of those things. And for those of you that don't know what I'm talking about, I'm going to leave the link under the for the prior episode under the audio portion of today's episode. But here's the quick background. Jennifer Bruzzo, as I think everybody knows, has been on a mission to make it harder for employers to educate their employees about the costs, risks and ramifications of unions. And in other words, as a union lawyer working at the behest of her comrades in the union movement, if Miss Abruzzo had her way, employers giving employees facts is something that if she could, she'd ban entirely. And of course, who could blame her, right? If you're a union trying to get union members, new members, why would you want workers educated on things like the law or the union's rules or the cost of dues, the fact that collective bargaining is not guaranteed? or the potential or the costs of labor disputes, going out on strike and what that can cost you. Why would you want workers to know that? Isn't it easier to win when you have a bunch of low information voters voting based on something that only you've been able to explain to them? 
So to that end, Ms. Abruzzo has been charging and prosecuting employers who conduct mandatory meetings on the topic of unionization. She's she's all about having voluntary meetings if you're going to have any meetings at all. And most recently has stated that she'd like to overturn a 1985 case called TriCast, which gets into how ex- employers explain the process of unionization or how the relationship changes once employees unionize. So the easiest way to explain this for you, and I'm going to try to do this quickly, but it's for, as a listener, for you to understand how the law is, I'm going to read to you the National Labor Relations Board's Basic Guide to the National Labor Relations Act, not the entire thing, but bear with me for those of you that listened to the prior episode because we're going to go a bit deeper. So the National Labor Relations Board, in its Basic Guide to the National Labor Relations Act, states under the section entitled the employee representative, quote, Section 9A, which is of the National Labor Relations Act, provides that the employee representatives that have been designated or selected for the purposes of collective bargaining by a majority of the employees in a unit appropriate for such purposes shall be the exclusive representatives of all the employees in such unit for the purposes of collective bargaining. In other words, if you're unionized, and even if you did not support the union, because the union won, the union is going to be your representative, right? So that's an easy one. A little further on, under the section entitled Duties of Bargaining Representative and Employer, the NLRB sort of repeats that, stating, once an employee representative has been designated by a majority of the employees in an appropriate unit, the Act makes that representative the exclusive bargaining agent for all in the all employees in the unit. More importantly, and this is where some of the parsing begins, the NLRB goes on to state, once a collective bargaining representative has been designated or selected by its employees, it is illegal for an employer to bargain with individual employees, with a group of employees, or with another employee representative. However, and this is where Ms. Abruzzo is focusing her efforts to prosecute employers who don't include this part. The NLRB goes on to explain in its guidebook, quote, Section 9A provides that any individual employees or a group of employees shall have the right at any time to present grievances to their employers and to have such grievances adjusted without the intervention of the bargaining representative, provided... Number one, the adjustment is not inconsistent with the terms of any collective bargaining agreement then in effect. Number two, the bargaining representative has been given the opportunity to be present at such adjustment. So to recap, as an employer, if you're not including this last part that employees, I'm I'm paraphrasing this, Any individual employee or a group of employees shall have the right at any time to present grievances to their employer and to have such grievances adjusted without the intervention of the bargaining representative, provided, number one, the adjustment is not inconsistent with the terms of any collective bargaining agreement, then in effect, number two, the bargaining representative has been given the opportunity to be present at such adjustment. If you have not included that, you're misleading employees and therefore, in Ms. Abruzzo's eyes, you're violating the law. So I'm going to give you a really quick example as a former union rep. I was a union representative in a right to work state, which meant that we represented all of the employees 
However, we would have a number of employees in the facility where I worked that were not members of the union. I was their representative as well. And I sometimes share the story that I had a a person, an individual who was not a member of the union, go to her supervisor of the area that I was in charge of and sit with him during is during a break and I knew that she was not a member, went to his office afterwards, and I said, what does so-and-so want? And he said, well, she had used up all of her vacation and, you know, basically wanted more time off. He didn't give it to her. However, by him meeting with her directly over that, he was denying me the opportunity to be present. And I threatened him with an unfair labor practice charge if he did it again. He was direct dealing with that employee. I had the right to be present as her union rep in that meeting, irrespective of the fact that he didn't grant her what she wanted. So that's kind of parsing out how the law works. So last week, the the attorneys at Fisher Phillips had an excellent post on this topic, which I'll share again in the links, but I'm not going to go through the entire post with you as it will be linked, but it's entitled seven things employers couldn't say about unions. If the NLRB's G general counsel has her way and it states in part, if the GC has her way, the Reagan era decision tricast will be overturned and employers will have a tougher time talking plainly to their workers about unionization. In that case, the employer told its employees that it would no longer be able to, quote, work on an informal and person-to-person basis with them if they unionized. The company's management also said, quote, we'll have to run things by the book with a stranger and will not be able to handle personal requests as we have been doing, end quote. So Fisher Phillips attorneys go on to cite these examples, and I'm just, I'll go through them fairly quickly with you. These are the seven employer statements that would be deemed unlawful if the GC has her way. Number one, there would be no direct contact allowed between supervisors, managers, and employees. Okay, so end quote that, and let me just pause for a second. That's just factually wrong because who's going to manage the business? Employers always have the right to manage their business that are unionized, but stating it that directly would be deemed unlawful. It's it's stupid to say that for any employer to say that. But in any case, number two, employers, quote, could no longer come to HR or the plant manager and talk to them about their problems. You'd only be allowed to do that through a union representative, end quote. Number three, you can't just come to me as your manager anymore. You have to go through your union rep. Number four, if you sign a union card, you'll be giving up your right to speak for and represent yourself. Number five, if you sign a union card, you will no longer have a voice. You've signed that away to some third party. Number six, everything would be filtered through the union. Number seven, the number one difference with a unionized environment is that you will not have the pleasure of working with me or management directly. You'll have to go through the union to have a relationship with us, end quote. So to repeat, those are examples that the GC believes would be unlawful. Now, the problem with a few of those is technically, if you go back to the union having the right to sit in between workers and managers, or at least to be present at a, quote, grievance meeting, they're, they're somewhat accurate, although GC Abruzzo doesn't want you to say, you know, she wants you to explain how the union, you know, isn't going to interfere with your right to speak to your employer. 
So the attorneys at Fisher Phillips go on to say, so what could you say? Now, again, this is not legal advice. This is an article that I'm just reading to you, or at least portion of the article. Compare these employer statements with one that the general counsel would permit. Quote, why might a union not be in your best interests? It means giving up your legal right to deal directly with me and our management team when it comes to working conditions. Instead, it means giving the union the right to decide for you what's most important to raise with us. The distinction, that's an end quote, then the, the attorneys state, the distinction is subtle yet significant. In the purportedly unlawful statements, the employers said that unionized employees lose their right in Section 9A of the Act to continue to deal directly about them about their grievances. But the general counsel would permit the employer to characterize, characterize the role of the union as the union's elected sole and exclusive representative. End quote. So I should mention that the article itself is not written to provide legal advice, just to share information. And if you're an employer or agent of the employer, you should not take what I just read to you to be legal advice. But the important takeaway here is that, again, employers need to be careful in how they explain exclusive representation when talking to employees. So the GC's focus on exclusive representation, though, is missing a couple key components. And this is where it kind of opens up Pandora's box and may, in fact, boomerang on the NLRB and unions. And I don't know that they're even contemplating this, but one of the issues is the union's rules. So let me walk you through this logically and sequentially and see if I can give you a, a paint by numbers fuller picture. In order to become unionized, unions typically will obtain a minimum of 30% of employees to sign union authorization cards. However, most union organizers will not file a petition with the National Labor Relations Board before they get what's called a supermajority, usually about 70%. Now, the verbiage on those cards, most of the time, will state something to the effect of, I, John Doe or Jane Doe, hereby authorize XYZ Union to represent me for the purpose of collective bargaining with my employer. However, the more complicated union authorization card might say something to the effect of, I, John Doe, Jane Doe, hereby authorize XYZ Union to represent me for the purposes of collective bargaining and in all matters of my employment with my employer. So that begs the question, does that include grievances? So then there's the dual purpose cards. And the dual purpose cards are basically the union authorization portion plus a membership application. And those aren't as common as common today as they used to be, but they are out there and they're still used occasionally. So what they essentially say is, I, John Doe, Jane Doe, hereby authorize you know, XYZ union to represent me for the purposes of collective bargaining and out of my employment, and I hereby apply for membership in the union. So let's just say, moving on to the next step, that a bunch of signatures are gathered, the union files a petition with the NLRB, goes on to win an election, or for whatever reason, the employer recognizes the union without an election, but now is the employer the employee's collective bargaining agent and the employer and the union are negotiating. 
Well, let's just say after a year or two, because the average time it takes to negotiate a first contract is about 460 plus days, according to Bloomberg, the union and the employer agree to a tentative agreement. And let's just say the union members vote to ratify the agreement, which we'll now call the contract. So most union contracts contain, as their very first article, a recognition clause. And the recognition clause states that the employer recognizes the union as the, quote, sole and exclusive representative of all employees in the bargaining unit. And in all of the contracts I've listened, uh, looked at in the last four decades, I have never seen a recognition clause that says, except that the employee shall have the right to present their own grievances and have them adjusted. So I'm wondering, should they now say that? It would seem to me that the absence of that language could be construed as problematic as it could stifle employees' Section 9A rights. Am I wrong? Or perhaps a negotiated grievance procedure that outlines how unions and employers resolve issues and complaints within the confines of the agreement should be required to have a disclaimer in there that that explains employees' rights under Section 9A. Or even more importantly in a collective bargaining agreement, what about the union security clause that typically mandates that all employees in the bargaining unit must become members in good standing and maintain membership within 30 or 60 or 90 days or get fired? Now, we know that mandatory membership in good standing is illegal in the 27 states with right-to-work laws. However, if the PRO Act passes or if at some point in time right-to-work states are abolished and mandatory and compulsory union membership is legal in all 50 states and workers then become union members, as a result of that, shouldn't their Section 9 rights be included in that section in, in the, in the uh, CBA, the Union Security Clause? What about those contracts like up in Michigan that state that if the state law changes, automatically union security goes into effect? Because I think most of you know the Michigan state legislature is looking at repealing right to work. So if, in fact, that happens, should there be an inclusion of Section 9A rights in a union security clause? So I know some of you are going to argue that workers under union security agreements could become agency fee payers, but that's not how most contracts are worded. And most unionized unionized workers don't even know the difference between agency fee payers and full union membership, especially if the contract states union members in good standing. So as a result, where they're required to, most workers join the union in the workplace because they believe if they don't, they don't have a job. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Okay, so now that we've laid out a foundation in this kind of paint-by-numbers scenario, let me color this in a bit further. Workers oftentimes do not know what their rights are in the workplace. And Ms. Abruzzo, the NLRB's general counsel, wants to hold employers and only employers accountable to ensuring employees' rights. But what about unions? You see, whether you know it or not, and more specifically whether union members, the workers, know it or not, all unions have a set of rules and regulations which are called the Constitution. 
And then at a local level, they'll have what are called bylaws. Well, within a union's constitution, there are typically things that union members are allowed to do and more specifically what they're not allowed to do. And more importantly, if a union member or anybody else in the union's structure, if you will, violates a union constitution, the union as an institution has the lawful right to put that member on trial. Now, some union constitutions are somewhat vague when it comes to how much authority the union has in the workplace. However, most unions state that a member may be placed on trial for interfering with the union's duty as the collective bargaining representative, which, loosely, could be taken as an individual member's representing themselves to present their own grievances and having them adjusted by their employer. In other words, if you're a union member and you've taken an oath of loyalty to uphold the Constitution and the Constitution states that the union is your exclusive bargaining representative, are you in fact violating the Constitution? But that could be a stretch, okay? I'll grant that. But some union constitutions are even more specific. And let me give you an example. The Teamsters Constitution is super specific on how much authority a union member grants to the union. Here's what the Teamsters say in their constitution about exclusive representation. In Article 14, Section 3, which is, which is found on page 119 of the Teamsters Constitution, it states, quote, Every member covered by a collective bargaining agreement at their place of employment authorizes the local union to act as his or her exclusive bargaining representative with full and exclusive power to execute agreements with the employer governing terms and conditions of employment. Okay, so that's the collective bargaining part. And to act for him or her and have final authority in presenting, processing, and adjusting any grievance, difficulty, or dispute arising under any collective bargaining agreement or out of their employment with such ma- with such employer in such manner as the local union or its officers deem to be in the best interests of the local union, all subject to Article 12 and other applicable provisions of the International Constitution rating, uh, relating to such matters, end quote. So, The part about the local union having, quote, final authority in presenting, processing, and adjusting any grievance, difficulty, or dispute arising under any collective bargaining agreement or out of their employment with such employer in such manner as the local union or its officers deem to be in the best interests of the local union is pretty specific and, in fact, seems to negate Section 9A of the rights, employees, Section 9A, rights under the law, right? And then section three goes on to state, and this is just kind of filling it in for even more color, quote, the local union and its officers, business representatives and agents may decline to process any grievance, complaint, difficulty, or dispute if in their reasonable judgment such grievance, complaint, or dispute lacks merit. So remember, I can be forced into a union to be represented by a union and they become my exclusive bargaining representative, most contracts in non-right-to-work states state that everybody in the bargaining unit has to become a member in good standing, and there's nothing in there about me representing myself with respect to grievances. If I'm a member of the union, again, 
the union is my collective bargaining representative and has exclusive authority, at least with the Teamsters, to process any grievance, complaint, difficulty, or dispute. Nothing in there about Section 9A of the National Labor Relations Act. So aside from the fact that this specific clause in the Teamsters Constitution puts the union's needs over the individual's needs, in theory, it doesn't say anything about them representing themselves. And more specifically, what happens to the member that does? So if we're looking to that answer or looking for that answer, at least within the Teamsters Union, you have to go a little bit further in the union's constitution all the way to the point where it talks about what members may be placed on trial for. And that's on page 146 of the Teamsters Constitution under Article 19, Section 7, Subsection B. Quote, the basis for charges against members, officers, elected business agents, local unions, joint councils, or other subordinate bodies for which they may, for which they shall stand trial, uh, shall consist of, but not be limited to, number one, violation of any specific provision of the Constitution, local union bylaws, or rules of order, or failure to perform any of the duties specified thereunder. Number two, violation of oath of office or oath of loyalty to the local union and the international union. Skipping down a bit further, number five, conduct which is disruptive of, interferes with, or induces others to disrupt or interfere with the performance of any union's legal or contractual obligations. So if I'm an individual member and I go to represent myself as a member, is that violating the Constitution? So there's other types of offenses, uh, offenses which the union's uh, trial process talks about in the Teamsters. But to me, those specific sections and specific offenses could be construed as if I'm a member of this particular union, I do not have a right to present my own grievances. And if I do, I can be placed on trial by the union for doing so. Now, for those of you who are labor lawyers and legal geeks out there, your immediate response, as I'm sure Jennifer Abruzzo's would be to this, is that federal law supersedes whatever is in the union's constitution. And a member should not, cannot be disciplined by a union for exercising their legal rights, right? So my questions back to you are this. Number one, how many union members know their legal rights? Number two, does the mere statement of those rules in fact seem to be contrary to the spirit of the law and specifically 9A that Jennifer Bruzzo so hot to have employers explain? And remember, number three, that Jennifer Bruzzo has prosecuted and continues to prosecute companies for clauses in their employee handbooks that have a chilling effect on employee Section 7 rights. So since Ms. Abruzzo seems to be on a kick about ensuring Section 7 rights, might it also be necessary for her to enforce the law on unions where they're infringing upon Section 9A rights and in their own rules might also be violating employee rights? Or in collective bargaining agreements, if they're not spelling out Section 9A, is that also not violative of Section 9A rights for employees? And finally, since charges at the National Labor Relations Board can be filed by third parties on behalf of workers, as happened to the Federalist Ben Dominic when he tweeted a joke 
why isn't anyone taking this up? You see, according to the United States uh, Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit last year, they dismissed a claim that Dominic joke, uh, Dominic's joke was a threat, but they also explained and reaffirmed a well-established principle that any person may file a charge with the National Labor Relations Board alleging that any person has engaged in or is engaging in any unfair labor practice. So to summarize, as and if Miss Abruzzo is targeting employers for not fully explaining to their workers their rights under Section 9A of the National Labor Relations Act, it would seem only fair that unionized employers, along with their unions, should also be doing so when crafting their collective bargaining agreements. And it seems that some unions within certain union constitutions may in fact be chilling employees on the exercise of their legal rights. That is their right to represent themselves, to present their own grievances to their employer. So again, this goes to the old adage, you can't have your cake and eat it too. And so my question is, will anyone take up this cause or am I just pointing out the obvious contradictions and is it going to fall on deaf ears? So I hope all of this kind of makes sense to you. The bottom line is this. You can't have a set of rules that only applies to one party and not the same set of rules that applies to the other. If Miss Abruzzo is prosecuting employers for not explaining Section 9A rights, why is she not going to prosecute unions or unionized employers for also not explaining the Section 9A rights? In any case, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. If you have any comments, questions, or just want to reach out, you can reach me at Workplace Report on Twitter. That's at WorkplaceRPT. Leave a comment under the audio portion of this episode or give us a call at 1-888-668-6466. Let me know if you think I'm right or wrong on this topic. I'm kind of fascinated and it kept me um, occupied all weekend trying to figure it out. Have a great week. You have been listening to Labor Relations Radio. Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoy Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.